live in the Bull Mountains northeast of Billings. Together they have protected their land and livelihood from coal companies, built onto their historic homestead by hand, and created a life for themselves out in the rough country while still having fun. Oh, and they have a back drain camel named Samson. Ellen Fister, P-F-I-S-T-E-R, and I live on the northern edge of Yellowstone County. How did you end up here on this ranch? Well, my father came to Montana in 1939, and he bought a ranch over on Pryor Creek in Yellowstone County. And um, he was a native of southeastern Wyoming, and it was a huge change from southeastern Wyoming to Pryor Creek. And in 1942, he bought this ranch as a supplement to the ranch on Pryor Creek. And to show you how much things have changed in that interval, at that time, he was planning to drive the cattle from Pryor Creek over here for the summer and then drive them back for the fall. And, of course, since then, the Shepherd area is just completely filled up with subdivision and they've closed roads and... So it, it was a, and it would be an impractical idea today. And he sold his cattle in 1953, and he kept the ranch. And I think the reason he kept the ranch was he didn't know what he'd do with the money. He didn't have much trust of Wall Street and the stock market, and he still had the money from his um livestock sale to try to invest and I think that was the reason why he didn't sell and I was a late child and um, my folks rented this place out for close to 20 years and mother finally told me if we were going to keep the ranch that I had to come back and so I did but my father died in 1966 so mother was out here several years by herself and it's the kind of a ranch that is probably more of an old man's ranch than uh, not, because there is no farming. Uh, there hadn't been any hay put up on it in 70 years. So anyway, I stayed. Had you met your husband before you came back then? And no, I didn't. I met him uh, when I was on the cusp of coming back. And at that point, in 1970, Consolidation Coal came around and wanted to strip mine the place. And we had seen what strip mining did for Pennsylvania back in the 50s, and it was horrible. And uh, we were basically people of the grass. And if that's what you look at on a piece of ground, turning it bottom side up to make it into a weed patch isn't a very um, good way to treat land. And so the way I reconciled it in my 15-year-old mind when I saw what happened in Pennsylvania, well, I guess that was the way Pennsylvanians wanted to treat their land, but we'd certainly never do that out here. But it turned out that uh, they would if they could. And so uh, that got everybody stirred up in the Bull Mountains, and uh, I met my husband during that time. Did he come from a ranching background? Yes, he did. His uh, great-grandmother came into Wyoming in 1882, and uh, she was widowed and wound up running a lot of sheep down around 
between Casper and Thermopolis. And then his grandmother married a man who had, was in the sheep and cattle business. And when he died, he left several farms and ranches to his children. And my husband's mother inherited the ranch from her father, but uh, the bankers wouldn't do business with those children, so her husband took on the business. And out of all of those children, my husband and his brother are the only ones uh, still left in agriculture today. His brother has a ranch on the Rosebud, and my husband is here with me. What do you find the most rewarding about ranching? What's most rewarding for me is being here on this particular place. Not so much the activity, although I like that, and I like the plotting and planning on doing business and so on, but to be here is the most rewarding for me. What does being here mean to you? Is it just connection with your roots and your family's roots? It's more connection with this piece of ground. What are some of the most challenging things? Um, for a woman, it's maintaining and keeping friends. Because uh, for a man, uh, men will want to come out from town and hang around and just hang around. And a trip out here for women is high adventure. So most of my socializing is done in town. The other thing you need to be able to do in the country is you need to be able to entertain yourself. If you have to depend on other people for your entertainment, uh, you're in trouble. What changes have you both seen in your years as ranchers? Oh, um, one of them is the changes in the breed of cattle that is generally grown now as opposed to what they used to be. And then you can see the uh, livestock business go through phases and fads. When I got into it, well, when my father sold out in the 50s, they wanted small cattle. By the time I got back into it in the 70s, they wanted giants. And now um, they have begun to moderate on the size of the cattle. And it's sort of like you never have the animal they want. <laughs> What sort of changes can you even guess agriculture will face in the future and your land will face in the future? Well, I think the wolves are going to have a huge impact on our operation um, if they're not curtailed. Yeah. And um, basically it'll throw us back 100 years, 150 years possibly. Um, this country is really rough. And uh, it would mean we'd have to go to packing a weapon all the time, among other things, because you wouldn't be able not to go out armed. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's probably going to change the facility with which cows breed if they're nervous. They're beginning to see those changes in the elk in the parks. And um, I think that's going to have a huge effect. Um, I think we raise the healthiest beef now that is pretty much possible to raise here, but um, 
uh, changes like corralling animals at night or something like that, it's going to require more labor, it's going to raise the cost of meat, and it's going to raise our loss um, costs. Um, it, it's, that's going to be really serious. Uh, the cost of fuel is high now, and it makes you think, how can I go to town and hit all of these things in one day rather than possibly going two or three days? It's hard when you have doctor's appointments and, oh, well, doctor so-and-so doesn't work on Thursday, and all your other appointments are on mm -hmm. Thursday, so that forces an extra trip. And something else I'm really worried about is um, what they're... Mm -hmm. You're, are you familiar with Southern G&T, that mm -hmm. bankruptcy? Mm -hmm. Well, the co-op that services most of this ranch was one of the ones that went along and just went along with the guy that was running it. And I'm afraid that they're going to run the price of electricity up to where it's going to be extremely expensive. And... Um, I'm wondering if that co-op will even be able to hold together, if they'll be able to hold on to the poles and lines. Um, apparently they've overbought on the amount of power that that whole thing needs, the whole cabal of them. I, I, and I think that's going to be serious. Uh, when I built this house, I put in as many fluorescent lights as I could, but uh, it's... That I think that's going to be another serious problem. Mm -hmm. When we moved in here, um, Don and I got married in 84. We moved into the old house, and at that time, it didn't have power in it or running water. So he said we had running water and a pay toilet. You ran and got the water, and you paid the toilet a visit over the hill. <laughs> we sort of added on a piece at a time. It got a little bit better living arrangement, but... The power was brought in here. The woman who homesteaded this, I think, came here about between 1913 and 1916. And um, she and her family had lost everything just before World War I. And so they came out here and took this homestead, and I think she was determined that she was going to have a home. And she did everything she could to hang on to it. The house was chinked with mud, and it had a dirt roof and a tar paper, dirt and tar paper roof. And um, it, the logs were just set on the ground, directly on the ground. But she had a home till she died. And she would um, staple cheesecloth on the inside of the house. And when the wind would blow, if the cheesecloth billowed, then she'd go out and put some more mud on the outside to stop the wind from penetrating. But... Uh, she had an awful lot of courage to stay here. Her husband died in 1939, and she was here till 1961 by herself. Oh, one of the things that it looks like agriculture is heading into is that it's going to take more cows for a family to make a living off. And I don't know if it's because our standard of living has increased that much, but the price of cattle has really not kept up with a lot of the inputs. It's a capital-intensive business and it hasn't really been paying well for a long time. Since you don't actually do crops or hay, do you feel like your ranch is already at a point where it has low inputs? It's, Still really it's, hard. 
Well, our inputs are still probably too high. And um, buying the feed in the winter, you're paying for somebody else's inputs. So one way or another, you're still paying. So the only places you can go is try to strive for more efficiency in your cattle and, and more efficient use of the grass you have. And um, with the kind of terrain that we've got here, that makes it difficult because terrain is somewhat your limiting factor too. But it is wonderful winter shelter here, really wonderful. In the future of your ranch, is there anyone that's going to step in and take over? Well, we thought we had someone. I wouldn't say that I'm sure now. We'll see. When you think back over your years ranching, is there a memory that really stands out? Well, Don and I have had an awful lot of fun just working together. We, we really have. And uh, even when we were living in the two rooms without um, electricity and so on, I really never went anywhere that I wasn't happy to come home. And then we added this addition on uh, around 2000. We moved in in 2001. And we have really enjoyed it. Can you think of anything that people should absolutely understand about ranching that maybe they don't seem to know? Well, I'd say that it's pretty much a 24-7. You, you order your life according to the seasons and according to the amount of work that you have. And there are actually only limited times in the year when you can afford to be away for an extended period of time unless you have someone who's there to take up the slack. In the old days when my dad was ranching in Wyoming, he'd have five or six hired men and there were a lot of single men who just kind of floated around the country and some of them drift into a ranch and they'd stay and and uh, they so there was kind of always somebody around but today you don't have that kind of a luxury of labor it pretty much falls on uh, either the husband and wife or their immediate family and it is a responsibility and the cows expect to eat um, they don't know that there's Christmas and Easter and that kind of thing uh, so it, it really is you have to pay attention if you're going to do well with it. Um, it somewhat, unless you've got backup, it limits how much politicking you can do, how much political action you can engage in, because ranching really does need to, the cows demand attention. Wouldn't you say, hon? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like having several hundred dependents is what it amounts to. <laughs> so. My dad used to say, them that has livestock has to take care of them. And he'd tell me that when I wanted to go do something social. <laughs> what brought you to Northern Plains Resource Council? Um, well, I, I mentioned Consol in the 70s. And they, when they came, my mother was here by herself at that time. And when they came around, they brought a release of damages clause and they said, will you please sign this release of damages? And she read it, and they said, for a dollar, we can come in and do all the damages we want and drill all the holes anywhere we want to. And she looked at that, and she said, well, who else has signed it? And they said, well, uh, Mr. Tully, Mr. Charter, Mr. Blah, 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 blah. And so she wrote the names down, and she says, well, 
I'll have to think about this and sent them away. And so she turned around and called the people that they gave her the names and they hadn't signed anything. And so that was, so they got together and had a meeting because they had been going around. That started the Bull Mountain Land Owners Association. And from that, we got in touch with some people down on the Rosebud. And as a result of those people and some folks at Bernie, that's what started the Northern Plains Resource Council. And uh, if those coal men hadn't lied, uh, they might have evaded all of this. <laughs> so that's, that's how it started. But the deal was, what they figured was, oh, well, ranchers never share their information because they're also afraid that, that their neighbor's going to get ahead of them if they get a, an extra dollar or something. And Mother broke the rules. Anything you want to add? Anything? Do you want to add anything? <laughs> Not that I can think of right offhand, though. I poured up some of the coffee. Hmm? I poured up some of your coffee for her. Was it stopping up? <laughs> Uh, we've we've kind of dabbled in other things. Don has a camel out here. Really? Mm -hmm. What? How did that come to pass? <laughs> well, <laughs> we had our cattle down in um, North Dakota, and um, so anyway, um, we drafted out in two thousand and moved out of here. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so um, somehow or another, I, I decided I needed something easier to get on. So we wound up with this with this camel. Well, he got fascinated with camels. We went to Australia in 2001, and they had lots of wild camels over there. They were the dromedaries, however. And every time he'd see one, he'd just kind of wander up, and the camel would nibble his shirt, and they'd kind of... <laughs> he said, I want a camel. So he found one in South Dakota, and uh, he's a very handsome boy. His name is Samson. Of course, my pun is, if I ever got to riding him good, I'd be humping right along. Our neighbor Steve Charter has ridden him. <laughs> he says amazing. he's smarter than most horses by yeah. one shot. Perfectly adapted, if we could just think of a way to make a living with them. <laughs> Steve tra uh, trails his cattle through us, and uh, some of the riders, oh, they're scared to leave their horses here. They think their horses would lose their mind if they saw Samson. Well, it would, it would scare them, but actually... It would be kind of good for them to get desensitized to seeing, mm -hmm. you know, uh, other things. Uh, I got some alpacas about 20 years ago, and uh, we had them here in the corral, and our horses were north here coming in to drink. And it took them three days before they'd come in. And the horses. The horses. Yeah. And they'd come as far as that shack on the hill, and then they'd stand there and look. And they just couldn't get over that. I, it must have been the odor because alpacas are pretty small. You know, they're not threatening. And finally, the, the, la the third day, there was one mare who had at one time been the meanest mare in the bunch, but she lost her status, and so she was then the one that they decided to shove forward, and they kept shoving her to the front of the bunch. And then she'd go a little closer, and then she'd run around to the back. Then they'd shove her through a little further, and she'd run around to the back. And they finally got her shoved up all the way to the tank so she could get a drink. And then they decided they could drink. But the funny thing was, 
they didn't really take any exception to the camel. They'd already had their terrible shock with the alpacas somewhat earlier. And so the camel was all right. But he thought, well, where he came from, they raised reindeer and camels. And so he never really had the chance to get out and be with other animals. And so we put him north. We thought he'd go with the horses and kind of settle things down one way or another. Well, he decided that his mission in life was to lie in the gate and keep the horses away from water. So we wound up putting him out here west, and that is now, of course, Camelot. And uh, we kept him out there for a couple of years. So then we tried, decided to give him a try with the horses again. And it was the young horses that took to him, and they're his buddies. But n none of them care now. I mean, it's all good. He's, he's quite, quite the animal. But you've got to have a few things that are fun. If everything is just total numbers that, um, pertaining to a bottom line, I, I don't have that kind of a mind, and Don doesn't either. Some people do, but we don't. So does he, does he hang out with the cows? He's he he hangs cows? out with the horses. We were calving heifers when he was out in Camelot, and he nearly rubbed that fence over trying to get in to see the heifers. I don't know what he'd have done if he had. I don't either. But uh, we've had some interesting experiences with llamas and cows, and that can be kind of an up-and-down proposition. But uh, so far, Samson's been good. He's got his horse buddies, and he doesn't care, and he'll take pellets from your hand. and. <laughs> And uh, he's got good fiber for spinning and that sort of thing. We feed him out south here. So a lot of times I'll take a, a bale of hay or something with me in, in the pickup. And I can lead those horses out in, in Samson. And Samson will be in the lead. He's, he's ready to come. But every once in a while he has to look back and see if the rest of them are coming too. Sounds like a sweetheart. <laughs> Have you got something else to say? Well, I'm just thinking I haven't come up with anything intelligent. What's your favorite thing about ranching? My favorite thing about ranching? Well, I guess the, my favorite thing is the independence that we have, I think. We, 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 we do as we choose, to a certain extent, and uh, um, see what we want so on. Well, it's a wonderful place for a workaholic because you never run out of work, even if you do run out of money. <laughs> and Don's folks pretty much raised him to be a workaholic. My dad was kind of the same way. He didn't, he didn't really have any recreation except his work. And that's kind of you, too. Mm -hmm. I'm way too good at too many types of recreation. It also makes me good at entertaining myself. So I'm not <laughs> after him. Well, let's go to town and go to a movie all the time. What's that? I'm not after you to provide me with entertainment. Yeah. But it's probably as few incursions from the outside as you can manage, although this coal thing has been a steady incursion for 40 years. and. Uh, that has, uh, I don't know, it's been just a kind of a constant nag that has. I kind of enjoy almost any time I'll sit back and look around, look at this house, and just 
what we've done here. And it's uh, pretty fascinating, really. We, you know, we did it all pretty much by hand, had some help, which what you see is, well, like that ridge log up there. And that big, huge post that holds it up. Um, those are kind of the things that we come at one piece at a time. I'd laugh, but that big post over there, we were riding someplace scattering cattle. Ellen mentioned the fact that she found just the post for this house, and I didn't know what she was coming up with. But oh, and, and he said there's, there's not a post left on the place after the 84 fire that will work. And I did find one. This is what, this is the old part of the house, and that's what it looked like when we started over here. I found that picture after we'd gotten that part of it habitable with new floors and a little bit of a foundation and insulation in the ceiling and cleaned the walls and so on. And I looked at that picture and I said, how in the world did I ever have nerve enough to even start on that? <laughs> and the cows were in there on the porch. Barns didn't have any roof on them. And it was, uh, it was quite a proposition. Thank goodness I didn't know how much of a proposition. You do things and afterwards you look back and you say, how in the world did I ever get that done? Of course, we had the big fire in 84 and we put in about 35 miles of fence the next summer. And uh, that was really so burned out on fencing we could hardly bear to look at it again. That was big summer. Oh, it was. And he was talking and he'd sleep at night. No, no, I don't want to go back up on that hill. I don't want to go back up on that hill. And his shoes actually got a slope uh, to fit the slope of the hill. It was, it was really something. And we had one room, and I was fixing lunches for fencing crews, and, uh, uh, and we were sleeping in the same room because we didn't have the north room finished. And um, it was quite a summer. <laughs> Quite a summer. But the one good thing about it is if you have to be burned out, I would hope it would be on a scale large enough that there is some disaster aid. Because if it hadn't been for the federal disaster aid and the Mennonite kids that came, uh, we might still just have one big fence around this ranch because uh, uh, the expense would have just been phenomenal. The Mennonites were. They were godsend. They were awful good help. Uh, they knew how to work. Mm -hmm. And, and they were willing to work. They were awful good boys. Well, I, I like to get a photo, so I can take a picture of Sam's. This project was made possible by a grant from the Matthew Hansen Endowment Fund and by an award through the Environmental Studies Department at the University of Montana. Thanks so much to Steve Paulson, Development Coordinator of the Northern Plains Resource Council. The music used in this program included Autumn Sunset by Jason Shaw and When I Grow Up by David Chappell, also known as Lustana. Both musical selections licensed under Creative Commons. See links to the music and hear more of my collection of interviews at montanaheritageproject.com.